Hi there. Welcome back. Thanks for joining me. <laughs> I just took Vladimir from his penthouse, which is his tank here in the house, to his country home, his enclosure out in the yard. That's my little Russian tortoise that I've had for about two and a half years now. And it's really funny. He kind of found me, and I'm really glad that he did. Um, you know, when you first get him, you kind of think, what, what kind of personality does this animal have that's very foreign and different from anything that we've known? You know, we're used to interacting with dogs and cats, and we kind of know what to expect from those animals. And they're, they're much more affectionate than a reptile. But he's got such a cute personality. I mean, he's never going to walk up to me and, you know, put his head against me or anything like that. But he's really cute. And the longer that I've gotten to know him, the more I see he's kind of introspective. He's a little mischievous. He really, oh, he's so picky about what he eats. He will not eat kale. I keep trying and I think I finally gave up on the kale. <laughs> so um, this morning I picked him up and I kind of did things backwards because I picked him up first and then I went over to the refrigerator and I thought, you know, it's been a while since I've given him a strawberry. They're not supposed to eat fruits that are sugary and those are like kind of big no-nos on their diet. They're not part of their natural diet anyway. So their digestive tracts are not designed to process those sugars and they can end up with bacterial infections. They're eating a lot of fruit, but you could just see him zooming in to that tub of strawberries inside of the refrigerator. So I did give him one because he's got the biggest sweet tooth, which I can totally <laughs> relate to. And Actually, when I first got him, I didn't know anything about tortoises. So I did a lot of research because I wanted to make sure that I was going to be a good mom to him. And I also took him to the vet just to get a whole checkup and get additional information about him. He had a bacterial infection in his mouth and the vet said that it was from eating too much sugar. So we had to give him shots. And that was terrifying to me because he's as big as like, say, a teacup saucer. So he's very small. And the needles that they gave me were really big. And what you have to do is it took two of us, Sophie would pull one of his front legs straight out. And there's a little bit of webbing where his armpit would be. And you have to stick that needle in that webbing I was so worried I was going to hurt him, but he is over his bacterial infection. His personality has just blossomed. He just like marches around. He's so happy out there. And that makes me really happy. I think the only thing that would make him happier is to have a big, wide open space like the Rocky Flats Wildlife Refuge. And that's coming up in the company of friends talk that I had with my friend, Ed Cray, who was one of the leads in the decommissioning of the Rocky Flats plant, where they fabricated plutonium pits. And because of his efforts, the Rocky Flats plant is now the Rocky Flats Animal Refuge. 
and it is a national landmark, and it's just one of the places that is a sanctuary to animals and widening of wildlife space on this planet, which is so necessary. And before I get to that, I just want to touch on something else that goes along the same line of thought, which is that I got an opportunity last week to hang out with my friend Robin, who is an educator over at the Cabrillo Marine Aquarium in San Pedro. If you haven't been there, put it in your bucket list and go check it out because it is such a gem. They have the largest collection of sea animals from Southern California, and they have some cool tanks, all kinds of jelly. The moon jelly tank is probably my favorite. They have seahorses, a sea animal nursery that is so cool, and a library. So that was a lot of fun. And I also got to hang out with my friend Grace, who is also a marine scientist. So after our visit to the aquarium, we took a stroll over to the tide pools there. It was super low tide. I mean, as low as you could get. So we got to walk out quite far. But one of the things that struck me was the lack of sea life that is there When my kids were little, I would take them there all the time. There were sea cucumbers and sea urchins and sea stars, um, shore crabs and hermit crabs and limpets, and just so much diversity there. At some point, sadly, I mean, just really, it's a tragedy. The Cabrillo Tide Pool area was no longer considered a refuge. They took the sanctuary protection away from it in order to be able to protect some other area of coastland that clearly all coastland needs it. So I can't argue with that. But without that protection, we're not very good stewards of our natural spaces. And so what ended up happening over the last several years is every time I would go to the tide pools, I would notice people walking away on the paths, like quite far from the sea with, you know, little kids with one sea urchin in their hand or a sea star or someone with a whole bucket of these creatures who was planning, I'm sure, a really great dinner. And as an adventurous cook myself, I totally get the excitement and that anticipation of putting something really unique on the table for people to enjoy. But the best place to get something really unique like that is from a farm or at a fish market, a fresh fish market, rather than collecting from the vulnerable tide pool line. I mean, the ocean is kind of like the last frontier, right? It's got these alien looking creatures that live in there. It's not really part naturally part of a human environment. We have over the years been able to develop equipment that allows us to participate in this watery world like snorkeling, which is one of my favorite activities. And scuba diving and all of that, but we're not naturally 
adapted to breathe underwater. And that's why these creatures have been able to proliferate and live for so long undisturbed. I think we're utterly fascinated by them. I mean, what is not to be fascinated by about them? So we pick them up and we walk off with them. But what we really need to do is put some thought into what we're doing with them and go ahead and satisfy our curiosity about them, but then put them right back in order to be able to help the environment and protect it longer so that we can enjoy it in our lifetimes, but also leave behind something for other generations to enjoy. Because from our visit to the tide pools, it was evident that human interaction has been really destructive to that vulnerable coastline. None of the creatures that I mentioned were anywhere to be found. I mean, we saw some barnacles, which are very hardy, chitons, of course, and seaweed and seagrasses. There was one tide pool sculpin that we saw, and that was about it. We really have a huge responsibility on our shoulders. And I know that I, I think that part of the issue is that none of us likes to feel like when we're responsible for anything else, we like to feel like somebody else is going to take care of it. And um, we somehow have to figure out how to get out of that mindset, because this refuge This former refuge, the tide pools, is the absolute opposite of what Ed was able to accomplish with the building of a wildlife refuge in Colorado. I mean, this episode is describing both sides of the coin, the building of a refuge and the destruction of a refuge. And somehow we need to figure out just each one of us on our own, how to protect the environment, because it's the little actions, that network of little actions that creates big change. So with that said, I want to segue into the wonderful environmental impact that my friend Ed Cray had by being part of the decommissioning of the Rocky Flats plutonium plant. And we're going to get into his music because he is an astounding musician. He is the founder of the Catfish Cray Blues Band. And so if you're into blues, you've probably heard of him. He was featured regularly on the King Biscuit Hour. And is, you know, a a huge fixture in the Denver, Colorado area where he mostly played. And I'm super excited to play the song Catfishing from his band, which will be featured at the very end, past the end credits. So be sure to stay for that, as well as a couple of bloopers that I usually put there at the end as well. He is also a huge killifish aficionado. And I'm just going to go ahead and embarrass him because he's lived such a rich and amazing life. He is not only someone who helped 
to decommission a plutonium plant, but also an accomplished horseman, a huge, huge car buff. So he was telling me the story about one day when it was about 10 degrees. It was either 10 positive or 10 negative. I don't know. To me, anything in 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 that temperature range <laughs> is just way too cold for me. And they had two cars. And his regular car would not start up, but he had this uh, Alfa Romeo. And he said it just started up immediately in that freezing cold. And he just became an aficionado of them. And they are what he drives. And they're really cool. He came out to visit a couple of years ago. And I got to ride around in what he calls the Green Hornet, his Stelvio T. He's a former science teacher. He's fascinating to talk to. So without further ado, here is my In the Company of Friends talk with Ed Cray. Yeah, Rocky Flats is the correct Rocky name. Flats plutonium yes. plant, yes. And was it plutonium or did it have a different name? Uh, well, it was just called the Rocky Flats plant. But yes, they deal with plutonium. I'm just really excited. We have spent about four hours trying to get connected to one another today. <laughs> and I, didn't, been, I didn't think you were going to admit admit that on the on the podcast, but all right, fine. I am, yeah, because podcasting seems so easy. You just get in front of a mic and talk, and it involves so much technology, especially when you're not directly in front of the person. So I think it's kind of nice to let the audience know that we have technical issues. <laughs> I've had other podcasts where in-person ones where the mic just turned itself off. So um, so many things to talk to you about, um, you know, from your musical career, your teaching career, your science career. I mean, there's a lot, your environmentalism, um, your horses, just what a, a full, rich life. I really want to share that with everybody. Okay. <laughs> yeah, let's start wherever you would like to start. Well, I want to use my opportunity to talk about the science part of my life. Okay, rarely do I get to talk about my real profession, which was health physics or radiation protection. Okay, um, Rocky Flats was an industrial plant where our country manufactured the plutonium pits that were the the center of of a thermonuclear weapon. Um, they made balls out of plutonium, um, which when compressed, exploded. And over the course of the plant's existence, they made over 7,000 of these plutonium bits. Um, that is no longer a classified number. Um, Hazel O'Leary published it about 20 years ago. At one time, inventory was a very classified subject. 
That's amazing. And these explosives were right next to a very populated area, right? Yes. Well, you know, when they built the plant in 1950, it was far on the outskirts of Denver. Um, Over the course of the next 60 years, Denver encroached and homes and ranches were built near their fence line. Yeah. And, oh gosh, even in the 2010s, they started building a large suburban development called Superior, just north of their fence line. Um, That name may sound familiar because that's the area that had the suburban wildfire just two months ago. And over a thousand homes were destroyed in the fire. That's just terrible. And can you imagine if the fire would have, if these plutonium pits were still there and that fire would have raged through there and gotten to them? Absolutely. Absolutely. We, we did emergency response calculations and reviewed them every month. And we tried to establish the maximum credible accident. Um, what should we plan for if there was a disaster here? And at the time, the maximum credible accident was described as a Boeing 747 crashing into their waste storage building and burning up thousands of 55-gallon drums filled with plutonium waste. And from that, we calculated that we'd have to evacuate people as far as 60 miles northwest in Greeley, Colorado. So yeah, there were definitely dangers there. That's incredible. Now, this plant operated, from what I had read, from 1952 until 1992, and production was halted in 1989 after the EPA and FBI agents raided the facility, which was run by Rockwell. And once it was shut down, Rockwell pleaded guilty of criminal violations of environmental law, and it was one of the largest penalties ever handed down in an environmental law case at the time. Exactly right. And what happened with that settlement is that the Department of Energy decided it was time to become open and truthful about what was happening on the plant site. Um, Prior to that, nobody had any idea what was going on inside that, and I think it's like a 400,000 acre area. It was top secret. But in 92, after the EPA raid, they became um, very open within the limits of classified information. And they made agreements with both the EPA and our health department um, for that openness. With our state health department, they put a person in an office on site, on the plant site, um, and that was my old boss, Al Hazel. He spent all day there, 300, well, 
52 weeks a year. And he did that for about four or five years, and then he retired, and he chose me to take the on-site job position. Wow. Were you part of the protest? No, I never was. There were a lot of people. One time it was, they encircled the entire plant site with a ring of of protesters. And I think that was in the 1980s. But no, I've never been a protester in my life. I've never been involved in any kind of a march or a protest. So no, I wasn't. That leads me to a a thought. Um, Mm -hmm. Many of the protesters, they were so anti-government, they they constantly attacked our health department for being complicit in this. And we sat there and listened, but in the long run, they were completely our allies in the in the battle to get this place shut down and eliminated. So I really appreciated what those protesters did. Wow. Yeah, I was uh, reading what you sent me about this plant, and I know that there were a lot of arrests. They had about 286 protesters who were arrested, and uh-huh. there, that group that you told me about included singers Jackson Brown and Bonnie Raitt. Were- yeah, I never saw any of that because I was back back in the lab analyzing soils for plutonium at the time. Mm -hmm. My understanding in the cleanup effort is that over 800 structures were demolished and there Uh were 21 tons of weapons grade material that was removed from there. So I was trying to um, put a visual to some of these facts and figures here and 21 tons that much explosives. And there was also 1.3 million cubic meters of waste Yes, that was removed from there, um, which is a really hard number to fathom. And also 16 million gallons of water was treated. Four groundwater treatment systems were constructed, and the area is still evaluated every five years by the EPA and the U.S. Department of Energy, as well as the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment. So even though it's closed down, there's still uh, remnants that are left behind. But the groundwater leakage, that is a big deal. All of this is a big deal. Yeah. Um, Well, when you look at the the plant site, and and there you can figure a Figure a square that's three or four four miles on the side. Um, But most of that is is just grassland. But the industrial area where they did the processing and got things fairly dirty is much smaller, probably probably a half mile by a half mile. That's what they really contaminated badly. There was one of their biggest mistakes... Um, and I think this was, I'm not sure if this was Rockwell or Dow Chemical, but when they work with plutonium to make these, oh, they're smaller than basketballs, smaller than soccer balls, um, bigger than a grapefruit, but they do a lot of metalworking. 
Um, they use lathes to make these, these hemispheres. Um, and so they generate a lot of little tiny plutonium scraps. And the plutonium scraps are usually in the lathe oil, the machining oil. So this would accumulate as waste. They put it in 55-gallon barrels, the, the oil contaminated with plutonium. And they put the barrels on the top of the hillside, a flat flat spot atop the hillside, and left them there. Um, over the course of years, the steel barrels corroded, and they started leaking oil onto the ground. Um, Rocky Flats is famous for its winds. When we had that windstorm and fire two months ago, um, they measured a, a wind gust of 100 miles an hour at Rocky Flats, whereas most of the city was down in the 50s and 60s. Anyway, they left the waste there, it leaked into the ground, and the winds blew it miles to the east um, over the fence line onto, onto public property. And that's when the public first discovered what was going on out there. A fellow named Dr. Carl Johnson with Jefferson County Health took soil samples and he sent them to us at the state and we found plutonium in the soil. Now, plutonium doesn't exist in nature. So we got an idea of what was happening on the other side of the fence. That must have been a shock to the community. There was public outcry and public meetings for the next 20 years. Yes. And you mentioned some of the effects of that radioactive waste. How did the leakage of this radioactive waste affect the local environment? There have been dozens and dozens of studies by our health department, by independent agencies, and we really can't identify an adverse effect. Okay? Um, there have been epidemiological studies of cancer incidents, and off-site, it, it is not st statistically elevated. So uh, there just wasn't enough. Um, radiation is very, very easy to analyze and identify, and we can analyze and identify minute quantities. And so because of that, we were able to find it. But we have not found, we've not been able to prove health effects. Um, people have been claiming health effects for decades. But it is a fact that one person out of three in the entire population will end up with cancer. And it, outside of Rocky Flats, it's, it's not statistically elevated, so we can't blame them. 
that's interesting. Um, it was a sealed off location, right? So it would have been hard for people to get there. The The water that it contaminated, was that used for drinking water? No, it, it wasn't. Another good thing is plutonium is not very soluble, so it doesn't spread well with water. Hmm. Okay, so it tends to sink? Yeah, it would have to sink deep into the soil mm -hmm. and dissolve. Now, they've had, while we're on the subject of accidents, um, they've had some big ones over the course of the year. Um, most of them were before the public became aware of what was going on there. Um, they had two fires in 1957 and 1969, and both of them were disastrous. Um, in 57, the primary pit production building, it caught fire. Now, plutonium, it's a metal, but it burns. Um, it doesn't take a lot of heat to get it started. And when it does get started, um, it turns into a pretty spectacular fire. So in 57, scraps inside the glove boxes. You, you've seen the pictures of the glove boxes. They always had plutonium inside of a glove box when they worked on it to keep it separate from the the people who were working on it. Yes, is that the, that's what they called those uh, plexi, it looked like plexiglass with yes. these thick rubber gloves and then they would handle yes. the plutonium pit inside. Yeah, you did not handle it by hand. You handled it with gloves inside of a glove box. Okay, and was that enough protection to prevent radiation from spreading to the person who was handling it? Yes. While they're working, yes. Hmm. Yes, that's how so, that's been handled for since it's a discovery in glove boxes. Interesting. Okay, so it's not plutonium is not. I'm just trying to understand since I'm not a scientist in terms of radiation. Plutonium is not as volatile in spreading that as some other metals would be, or some other. Oh, excellent question. All right. Um. There are three different types of radiation, and I'm sure you've heard these words, um, alpha, beta, and gamma. And gamma radiation is completely penetrating, um, more so than x-rays. It goes through things, except, except maybe for a thick layer of lead. Beta radiation may penetrate thin layers of things, like it can penetrate paper or cardboard, and it may travel inches, okay? But alpha radiation, which is the type of radiation emitted from plutonium, it's a big particle, and it's very non-penetrating. So something like a glove or a glove box was was complete protection for a worker who was working on it. You wouldn't want to handle it with your bare hands, but it's not penetrating. It's it's particularly dangerous if you get it in your lungs. 
So for a worker, we would be extremely concerned with any dust getting loose and into their breathing zone. Okay, so the primary purpose of the glove boxes was to prevent that dust from being released into the surrounding air. I would say that's correct. Yes. Yeah. So when you were working on, when you took over from what your boss was doing, um, how long did you do that for? What did your day look like? The most fascinating job I could possibly imagine. Um, my job was to be out there and and understand what they were doing every day um, and keep tab of it and and make sure it was safe. I'd go in the morning and first thing I would do would be to go to the morning manager's meeting where the managers of all the major departments would go around the table and explain what's going on in their in their area, whether it was radiation protection or or waste management or public relations or whatever it was. So I had to get an idea of what was going on today and if there was anything that affected safety, I'd, I'd follow it during the rest of the day. Um, I'd be invited to discuss new treatment techniques or future plans, um, and it was something different every day. Were you ever concerned for your health or your safety? No, I wasn't. No, I wasn't. I, I, I understood what they were doing, what they were working with. Um, and I kept close tabs on what they were doing to ensure the safety of their workers. Um, and I was in general satisfied with what they were doing. Did you have to suit up? You know, you see these films where they go out to inspect a contaminated site and everybody's in one of those white bunny suits with the gloves and the head coverings. Simple answer is yes. I would go into one of the plutonium processing buildings several times a week. And doing that was fairly involved. First of all, you'd have to go into, they called it the area, the plutonium processing area. Um, to do that, you'd have to go through the gates and be inspected by the Wacken Hut guards and be monitored for any radiation on you as you went in and out the gates. The area was, it was surrounded by armed Wackenhut guards, first of all. And they were on, they were on the lookout for any sort of, of, you know, there are people out there who would love to steal plutonium. Um, and then once you came in, you'd go to your, to the building of choice. There were about seven real big plutonium handling buildings. And to go in and do an inspection, You'd spend about a half hour to 45 minutes dressing out in a moon suit, putting on a full face respirator to protect your breathing zone and the yellow outfit with the hood over it and the booties and the gloves and taping your gloves down around your wrists. And, and that would take probably a half hour, 45 minutes just getting dressed out to go in. And then on the way out, you would go through the radiation technicians and they would survey you 
with their meters as you left to make sure you were clean. Wow, that's a lot. Um... And and to go back to your question, I was never truly worried about my my personal health because they were so careful um, in monitor, monitoring us going in and out. That's good to feel that kind of protection when you're doing something so serious as this. And how long were you there for? I seem to remember about 13 years. I was there through the cleanup. Um, the EPA raid that changed everything was in, I think, 89. And I came, I moved in in 92. And in 92, um, most of the guys, there are 7,000 people who worked on that plant site. In 92, most of them were still hoping to build bombs. The, the plant's future was, was up in the air. Uh, and then over the next few years, um, the Department of Energy decided that they would no longer build bombs there and they were going to close it down and, and eliminate it. They established a budget of $7 billion to do it and assigned the project to a new contractor, Kaiser Hill, to make it happen. And as I mentioned, they managed to finish it within budget and within, within the timeline. One thing that, was, that I find amazing about that is that there were 7,000 workers out there who were working them, themselves into unemployment. The guys out there were fairly well paid. It was hard to get a job that paid that well for somebody who was just a high school graduate. But they had it. And through that 10 years of decommissioning, um, they were working themselves out of a job. They were union guys in most cases, um, the steelworkers union. And Kaiser Hill managed that project with no problems with the unions. I, I'm, I'm just still amazed at that. I was going to ask about that because when you have, um, you know, you, you've got the two sides of the coin. You've got the closure that the community wanted of a dangerous site. And then you've got this group of workers who are now unemployed. So did Kaiser uh, help to relocate them? Or do you know at all? They didn't. They didn't. Um, they received, the corporation, Kaiser Hill, received a, I think it's a $3 million bonus for finishing ahead of schedule. And all through the process, um, in the plant newspaper, they kept telling the workers how they were going to share it with them at the end of the project. After the closure, I contacted a few workers and said, well, did they ever share a penny with you? And the answer was no. Wow. Were there other other sites that the workers could go to near there? I'm assuming that that's what happened or, you know, possibly just moved away and moved closer to somewhere else where they could get a similar job. I really don't know what happened to all of them. I, I know one, I know one guy who's now playing with a local blues band. Um, a lot of the DOE guys, Department of Energy, did get jobs at other sites, Hanford in Washington or or Los Alamos, or they, many of them got transferred if they were younger. I remember 
one of the Kaiser Hill engineers going to Ukraine um, with the team to put a bid on um, helping with the reclamation of Chernobyl. They didn't get the job. Yeah, another friend of mine then got the job doing cleanup someplace in the middle of the, uh, on an island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Yeah, I would imagine that those are skills that would be highly sought after. Yeah. Um, so you were also there during the time when it started coming, the, where the site was split up, right? There's two main areas. There's still an area that's closed off to the public. And then yes. there's a second area that became the Rocky Flats National Wildlife Refuge. And it's actually a U.S. National Registered Historic Site. Yes. And did you have yeah. a hand in any of that? No, not that was, oh, that was politics. And no, so I didn't. It's, it really, I have an opinion on that. Um, the federal government has done this in a couple of instances, turned land into national wildlife refuges. Um, there's another one here east of town called the Rocky Mountain Arsenal, where they did chemical processing, and they turned that into a national wildlife refuge. There's a, oh, what's the word I want? There's a nefarious strategy involved in that. When you turn something into a wildlife refuge, you no longer have to clean up the land for unrestricted use. You no longer have to make it clean enough to build houses on it. And so making national wildlife refuges saves them tens of billions in cleanup charges. We argued for years about what the correct tonium in soil cleanup standard would be out at Rocky Flats. And because it was be going to be a national wildlife refuge, I couldn't argue for standards that would clean it up enough for people to live on the land and again. So I see it as kind of sneaky. So do you think that the amounts of plutonium that are there now are higher than they would otherwise have been? Oh, definitely. Because virtually anywhere else on Earth, there shouldn't be any amounts of plutonium. Maybe near the rest near the Russian test sites and, and near the Nevada test site, but otherwise there's very little plutonium any, in anybody's soil. It is made in nuclear reactors. When the fission process takes place, the uranium in a reactor is broken down into smaller parts, and there are alpha particles flying everywhere. Um, some of those alpha particles get caught in uranium and make it even bigger. They make it into plutonium. And plutonium is needed for bombs. Absolutely. In the early 50s, our government set up the Hanford Reservation in Washington State. And they built, I remember the number 11, 11 nuclear reactors there. And the purpose of those reactors was to bombard the uranium in the, in the fuel cells and, and 
turn it into plutonium. That was the product in those from those reactors. I, I yes. was really surprised when I took a look at Rockwell International because I do remember there being a Rockwell plant here near my home here in Los Angeles. And they were involved in aircraft, the space industry, defense, commercial electronics, components in the automotive industry, printing presses, avionics, and industrial products. And I thought, wow, they had access in a lot of places. And I was just kind of trying to figure out how they would use plutonium in some of that. So it must have been for for military contracts. Yeah, it it truly is amazing how these large engineering corporations diversify themselves into into whatever government contract they can make money on. That is amazing. So now there is still an area that is closed off to the public there. Is that, uh, what are they doing there? Do you know? As far as I know, nothing. Um, It's just closed off. Um, You mentioned the fact that they will periodically monitor it to make sure that the radiation levels are, make sure nothing has changed. But no, it's, it's closed off and it will stay closed off. So it's kind of an access site for the government to be able to do its work there. Yeah. Um, so now the park itself, how big is that? And is it camping, trails? I mean, what's there? Okay. Well, picture an area that's that's probably about five miles by five miles square. Okay. I, I There was a time I knew how many acres that is, but... I don't know. And it is essentially, it's prairie land. It's grassland. Mild hillsides, but but essentially, uh, you know, very few trees. You'll find mule deer there. You might occasionally find an elk. And, and then small wildlife. They had a ploy early in the, the project's history where... They identified an endangered species at Rocky Flats and tried to use the endangered species as, and it's my word when I say excuse, to condemn the property for any future development. Um, They identified a mouse. They called it the Preble's Meadow Jumping Mouse. And the only way to tell the difference between a Preble's Meadow Jumping Mouse and a plain old Western Jumping Mouse was to kill it and measure the length of its skull. Wow. But they spent years trying to close down the property because of the Preble's Meadow Jumping Mouse. That's amazing. So it's open now to the public and... Um, you know, when you said meadows, I've been imagining, because of where you live, you're on a mountain. I've been imagining lots of pine trees and not prairie. Um, yeah, no, this is the base of the mountains. It's it's prairie land. They've got some trails. People occasionally hike. Jan has wanted to take the horses down there for years, but we've never gotten to do it. There are still oftentimes protests claiming that it's not safe to let people walk on it and and 
Well, their data just doesn't hold water. And I think that's why I asked that question, not because of the folks, but simply because I think it's so important to understand what you're actually talking about. And there are these grades of radiation, like you said, because when I saw that picture of the glove box, I thought, whoa, this is just plexiglass and rubber gloves, you know, and I'm thinking uranium, I'm thinking incredibly volatile, high levels of radiation coming off of this and somebody who has no idea of how dangerous it is we're handling. So it's good to know that there are different characteristics to how the dangerous components of various elements actually become a danger to humans or other living things. You know, when when they make plutonium, it is produced in the fuel rods of nuclear reactors. And those fuel rods are definitely what we call high-level waste. They have all sorts of radionuclides in them. Um, they have many gamma emitters. Um, those are the highly penetrating radionuclides. And they do separate those out and use them for a number of medical purposes. The gamma emitters probably will, will go into little pellets they use for radiotherapy in hospitals. And so when they're done with the fuel rod, they take it out of the reactor and they, they dissolve it and they separate the various radiochemicals. Plutonium is, is it's convenient in that um, it is not penetrating, so they can work with it in glove boxes. Yeah, that's really interesting to me. I mean, it's just, you you have to see the whole picture of that. You know, I remember in college, we were in, I don't remember what class it was, but anyway, for some reason, this conversation came up with one of my classmates who was quite a few years older than me. And he said that when he was a child, I believe he was a child in the 50s, uh, he had a goiter and his mom took him to the doctor and the doctor gave his mother a little piece of uranium and said, oh put this piece of uranium against the goiter. And I just, you know, just freaking out at thinking of ever doing this to the child. <laughs> and I asked him if he was okay, if it worked. And he said, yeah, the goiter went down in just a couple of weeks. And I don't know what happened to that uranium pellet. I, I don't know if, you know, just like you send it out of the office, does it get thrown away and become a problem later on? Or does it get returned to the office? I don't, I don't know what the rest of the story was. That's ama that amazing. Isn't that amazing? So I know that, like you said, these gamma pellets are useful. So all of this material, all of these, um, this plutonium, this radioactive material is actually being manufactured for useful things like x-rays. It's yes. just when it becomes these huge quantities. And you mentioned that the reason that there was a leakage is because they didn't know what to do with those barrels of waste. How do you how do you um, responsibly take care of waste like that? You just hit on one of the really amazing aspects of this situation. Um, when, when we started the project, 
and we spent a lot of time working with the public um, and, and, and keeping them informed of what was going on. But the public told us it's impossible to get rid of Rocky Flats. It will take you at least 100 years, and it will take you at least $100 billion. And most people believe that. One of the really amazing aspects of the decommissioning is the fact that the federal government and the operators found places to send the waste, okay? Um, not in my backyard is, is most people's response to radioactive waste. There's a wonderful place to put high-level waste from reactors just north of, of Las Vegas at the national test site. But Nevada says, no, you can't bring it here. But the people who were running this whole scenario found places to put the waste. Transuranic waste, which includes plutonium and those heavier elements, went to a new repository in New Mexico, an underground repository um, in salt beds. And they managed to get approval to build it and use it. And the transuranic waste went there. The low-level waste, much of it went to a site in Eastern California near the Arizona border and they were approved to take that. We found places to dispose of the waste. If it weren't for that, it could have never happened. So while you were talking about it, I looked up a couple of places. There's the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant, which is just southeast of Carlsbad, New Mexico. That's the place I was thinking of, yes. Okay, and then there's the Yucca Mountain Nuclear Waste Repository here in California. Those are the places. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. So I guess my question is because I, you know, just environmentally speaking, when you have nuclear waste, does it ever go away or is it something that's going to continue to be stored and accumulated in these repositories? There's a long answer and there's a short answer. The long answer is it doesn't go away. The short answer, I mean. The long answer is it will, but it would take an awful long time, more than many, many lifetimes. So it's not worth really bringing up. Now, there's some radioactive waste um, that does decay quickly. It depends upon the isotope. You're familiar with Chernobyl and the biggest problem at Chernobyl was an isotope called iodine-131. It filled the air there in, in the Ukraine and, and Belarus, and a lot of people inhaled it. And like any iodine, it concentrated in their, their thyroid glands. And there was a, a high excess of thyroid cancers in the Ukraine after Chernobyl. But iodine-131 has a shorter half-life, like six years. 
and so it's going away and and that hazard is is going to decay away in the ukraine but the radioactive waste that we have here plutonium has a half-life of 240 years and the general rule is before a, a, a radioisotope is gone you have to go through 10 half-lives at 10 half-lives it's essentially down to zero so um plutonium we got a we've got 240,000 years before it goes away was that sufficiently confusing yeah <laughs> but it made sense that's the the excellence of the teacher in you uh, because you did teach science for many years as well right yes i did you know you can look at it this way the shorter the half-life of an isotope the faster it's going to decay the faster it's going to decay um the more radiation it's giving off so those things with short half-lives tend to be more harmful interesting yeah while you were talking about that uh you mentioned chernobyl and it just made me think of this lady who is known as bio nerd 23 and she was walking around there very shortly after the accident, eating radioactive apples, go, going into the plant itself, pretty much unprotected. And, you know, there's a video of her trying to pick something up and she was getting bitten by these radioactive ants. And I don't know, she was making videos for a long time. I don't know what's happened to her since, but it was really interesting. And she says she, you know, was not getting cancer. I don't know what's going to happen 20, 30 years down the road. BioNerd23? BioNerd23. That's what she went by. I, I want to look for this. There was, yeah. there was another lady um, whose website I followed and... Uh, trying to think of what she called herself something like need for speed she was a motorcycle rider and she had a little crotch rocket and she would put up videos of her um driving through chernobyl and her views of chernobyl i gotta look for bio nerd yeah <laughs> yeah and oh she's actually got you, you gotta look for this one maybe i'll send it to you after after this episode, she's got radioactive wells catfish on a video, and she came across those, so that might be kind of interesting. I, I would go there in an instant. It's on my bucket list, okay? And, and I only say that because it is probably the most wonderful laboratory um, in which to study radiation health effects. It's... Radiation health effects is my thing, and I'd love to see it. That left you speechless. Oh, yeah, I thought I turned my mic back on. I was talking to a dead mic. Um, if you went there today, would you suit up, or would you feel comfortable enough that the radiation levels had dissipated enough for you to walk through there dressed as you normally would? The simple answer is yes. Um, there are numerous tour companies that offer tours of the restricted area, and all of them take proper precautions. 
They all have meters with them. They have all have dosimeters that will ensure that you have not experienced an unacceptable dose. So I would feel comfortable. Yeah, they they take they take precautions with their tour groups. Mm-hmm. And okay. I definitely wanted to talk about the band. You were on the King Biscuit Flower Hour for a while. You were part of the Catfish Cray Blues Band. King Biscuit is something that that oh, I love the I love the whole concept. Okay, back in the early forties, there was a disc jockey named Sunshine Sunny Payne, and he was just a teenager. He went into the local radio station and said, hey, I want to do a show. And actually, the radio station was just a little shack out in the country. All right. And they said, kid, if you can get a sponsor, we'll let you do a show. And he went down the street to the local flour mill, and they agreed to sponsor him. And that was the King Biscuit Flour Mill. So he started this radio show in in the early 1940s and he did it continually it was on at noontime right after the agricultural report he did it continually until about uh, two years ago when he died his name was sunshine sunny Payne, and the radio show was called king biscuit show and he played blues early on he would get the locals to come into the studio and play live. And the locals included Muddy Waters, B.B. King, Sonny Boy Williamson, um, Robert Jr. Lockwood. Uh, and then 10 or 15 years ago, they turned it into a, a blues festival down in Helena, Arkansas. And I would go to that festival almost every year. It was fantastic. They'd have the real authentic blues players play at King Biscuit. I mean, we have a festival here in Colorado they call a blues festival. And the people they bring in oftentimes have nothing to do with the blues. But King Biscuit would bring in the real guys. We had a radio station out here that was KMET. It's not around any longer. And they always played the King Biscuit Flower Hour. I'm not sure if KLOS did as well. That radio station is still around. And there was a story about that. There were some Mm -hmm. guys from New York who commandeered the name King Biscuit. And they actually took Sonny Payne and KFFA to court over the name, um, saying he couldn't use it anymore. And these were New York lawyers. Um, The fans really didn't put up with this. And they put in so many objections that these New York lawyers finally gave up using the name on what they were calling the King Biscuit Hour. He started playing in the 60s, originally in Cleveland. And Albert Collins, he influenced a lot of your playing. Yeah. Well, you know, I really didn't know that much about Albert Collins in the 60s. In the 60s, I was still doing rock and roll. I was introduced to the blues when B.B. King came to town and and guys like Eric Clapton and, and Mick Jagger told me to listen to him. Okay, but I, I really 
wasn't that into the history yet. I didn't do that until probably the 80s sometime, the mid-80s. That's when I really started studying the blues and said to myself, you know, this really is what I wanted to play all along. Why am I, why am I playing rock and roll? Were you in Colorado in the 80s? Is that when you started playing blues? We came, and- here, yeah. we came here in 1980, right? I've been very lucky to connect with some of the most amazing lady singers in, in the state. Just lucky. And they sound fantastic on, uh, you've got Splash, got Ripples. I know I've got both of those. That's all I really have. I've got a couple of demos, but those don't count. Mm-hmm. So tell me about your killifish. This could take hours. <laughs> well, you've seen pictures of them. Yes. Um, they're just extremely colorful and beautiful fish. And they're rare because they're difficult to reproduce. They take a lot of effort to reproduce. Something like an angelfish has will lay 600 eggs a, at a time. You know, and and you raise up a huge batch of them and take them to the fish store. Killifish lay one egg at a time, one egg with each spawning act. And they'll do that dozens of times a day. But with all these eggs separated by days, you can't raise them in batches. You have to put a lot more care into raising them up and distributing them. But they're beautiful. Some of them include the true, the true annual fish. And these are fish that live in habitats in Africa that completely dry out for half, if not part of the year. And their eggs estivate in the dirt for three to six months until the next rainy season. And so reproducing them in aquarium is is even more of a challenge. You put peat moss in the tank and they'll spawn in peat moss one egg at a time. And then you pull the peat moss out and partially dry it and put it in a bag for three to six months. And then when you throw it back in water, you'll get sometimes hundreds of hatchlings. What an amazing phenomenon that must be. And absolute dedication. How many tanks do you have? I, I've got about 50 now. And, and for killifish, most of them are small tanks, maybe two gallons to five gallons, eight to 12 inches long. You know, I've always thought that our Killifish Association needs to encourage some famous wildlife photographer to do a program about killifish. Their colors would knock people out. Their mode of reproduction, the annualism, would not p- knock people out. We've got, we've got programs about every other kind of animal on National Geo. Um, gosh, we watched an hour about meerkats the other day, then another hour hour about gorillas. Somebody needs to do a program about killifish. 
Yeah, they're gorgeous. I'm looking at some pictures right now of yours, and somebody has not seen a killifish. They remind me, color-wise, just that spectacular wow appeal to them of betta fish. Yeah, exactly. Are they similar to betta fish that have to be kept separated from one another? No, No, they're not. When I raise up a batch from eggs, two or three dozen fish in a 10-gallon tank will get along. But the males do. They are they are pugnacious. They'll fight with each other. Fins will get split. Um, occasionally, there'll be a little wound. So they're better off kept in pairs. But they're not like betas. I say beta. Betas still spawn in big batches. They make their bubble nests, and and there's one spawning session for a couple of hours, and they'll put hundreds of eggs in the bubble nest. Killifish, the males are sex maniacs. (laughs) They're chasing their girlfriends 24 hours a day. If I go look at a tank, I'll see him chasing her. And when he finally catches her, they'll lay one egg. And they'll keep this up all day long. Poor girl. (laughs) Do you ever separate them just to give her a break? If I see her getting beaten up, I will. It's just part of their, part of uh, being a fish, I guess. I tend to look at things as a biologist. Okay? When you consider biology and evolution... The male of any species is born to pay attention to the female of that species. Um, Some of them, some species are extremely violent about that. That's totally inappropriate for humans. But paying attention, I see as normal. Have you watched the series called Ocean on PBS? I have not. It's it really is marvelously done. Um, last week's episode was on mating methods, um, so look for that one if you get a chance. It's really worthwhile. Okay. Oh, I was going to ask you because I decided I'm going to start doing this with my guests. I thought it would be kind of fun. Do you have an LA story? An LA story. Yeah, a story about Los Angeles. Anytime that you've been out here, some wacky thing that happened or some wonderful thing that happened or anything Los Angeles. I've been out there twice. One was the visit with you and Suzanne. Um, The other was a killifish convention. The killifish convention was so far back, I don't remember anything. In my last visit, the evening driving around with you was the high point. I'm so glad. That was a lot of fun. I am still bummed out that we stood on that pier and did not see a container ship come through there. (laughs) I thought we did. Was there one that came through there? Well, maybe there was. It wasn't real real up close, but we did see one. Mm -hmm. That was a fun night. I'm so glad that we got together. This was so much fun. I always love talking to you. 
I especially love this conversation. I just thought it was absolutely fascinating. And I'm glad I got to share you with the rest of the world. I hope you enjoyed that. Thanks so much for listening. That was so fascinating and gratifying to hear how Ed was able to help out with the decommissioning of that plant and make the world a better place, not just environmentally, but musically as well. So be sure to stay tuned because at the very end, past the end credits and a couple of bloopers, you will hear Catfishing by the Catfish Cray Blues Band. And as always, I love getting your questions, your suggestions. I love that you're listening to me. Thank you so much. Keep the questions and suggestions coming and be sure to follow me on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I am also on the dot com at the Queen Trail Podcast. That's T H E Q U A I N T R E L E Podcast. That's where you're going to find all my post updates, upcoming topics, recipes, and so much more. I've got many more in the Company of Friends talks coming up, of course, as well as some lists with Sophie and just some fun stuff that I want to talk about on my own. So be sure to follow me, give me a like, like my pages, um, and also rate this podcast on whatever streaming service you're listening to. It really helps promote it to the top so that more people can listen to it and listen to my friends who have so much to offer. (laughs) And as always, until next time, I wish you passion, grace, elegance, and beauty. I just i I went back to your your last phone mail here, and i I clicked enter again. <gasps> oh my goodness, Grace! Great, we got it. Success! Yes. Hooray! Oh my gosh, that was only what? Uh, when did we start? <laughs> Ten o'clock your time. Ten o'clock. Four hours later. Yeah. That's amazing. I even charged my phone up before I came down here. There's this little teeny tiny beetle that's crawling around that just totally distracted me. Oh, my God.
about guitar. Joe's gonna bring his sax. Jeff's gonna do some singing Kate Blue. Play him today. Let's go catfishing, baby. Down by the old fishing hole. Catfish Cray with the Catfish Cray Blues Band, Catfishing off of their 2009 album, Splash. I've always wanted to be a DJ. Be sure to check the show notes for how you can listen to more of his music. 